Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this football season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of statistics, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and an enormous selection of players and stat options are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million football fans who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/get100 and use code GET100. That's code GET100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors. But as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% of the population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military. And the other 99% of us, we owe them. Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veterans Show. Thank you, as always, for making us a part of your Sunday afternoon. We greatly appreciate your time. We could not do programs like this without our presenting sponsor. And for years running, thank you to the law firm of Boson Law, B-O-E-S-E-N Law, BosonLaw.com. Attorney John Boson fighting on behalf of veterans every single day. He and his staff of attorneys are working with issues regarding the VA. They also are focused on camp. Camp Lejeune veterans as that deadline approaches to file your claim. If you need help or know someone who does, bosonlaw.com or 303-999-9999. And please mention you heard about them on the American Veteran Show. We've got a great program ahead, of course. We're going to kick off with some late developing news. Just this past week, so many Americans in Sudan trying to get out in a special military operation involving SEAL Team 6. Just this past week, we will talk about that. Also, rooting for the Taliban. Well, when the Taliban kills an ISIS leader that was responsible for the death of 13 Americans in the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, I guess you could say, yeah, go Taliban. We'll talk about that in this first segment. Coming up in segment number two, Harry Belafonte. He passed away, and some would say, why is Harry Belafonte even being mentioned on the American Veteran Show. Well, did you know that Harry Belafonte, who died this past week at 96, did so much both on screen, um, in music, and he was also a, a civil rights icon and uh, had friendships with the likes of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. and the Kennedys. Well, Belafonte was a World War II United States Navy veteran, but he was at Port Chicago for a while 
in San Francisco and the Bay Area. We'll talk about perhaps a story you've never heard of. We featured it, I believe, once on the American Veteran Show over the years, but the disaster at Port Chicago in July of 1944. We'll talk about that. And we wrap up the program with a preview of more job fairs to come coast to coast for veterans. We talk with Recruit Military at RecruitMilitary.com. First, developing news this past week. New reporting tonight on the daring operation in the middle of the night to rescue Americans from the U.S. Embassy in Sudan, including SEAL Team 6. And just before we came on the air tonight, the U.S. revealing a new 72-hour ceasefire in place in Sudan to allow desperate families a chance to escape the fighting and to allow the U.S. to help get more Americans out. Tonight, the Pentagon sending two Navy ships, one already there. And James Longman with late reporting tonight. Tonight, inside the daring mission to save Americans at the U.S. Embassy in Sudan, that dangerous nighttime mission to evacuate the embassy in the besieged capital of Khartoum. U.S. Special Operations Forces included the Navy's elite SEAL Team 6, and they flew 800 miles to Sudan's capital in three Chinook helicopters. They took off from a U.S. base in Djibouti and stopped only to refuel in Ethiopia. The choppers were on the ground for less than an hour, with several manned and unmanned aircraft flying overhead. All this under the cover of darkness. No shots fired and no casualties. They rescued close to 100 embassy staffers and their families. And tonight, just a short time ago, ABC News has learned a new U.S.-brokered ceasefire is taking effect as the U.S. works to assist thousands of American citizens still trapped in the war-torn country. The White House says it's actively facilitating the evacuation of those U.S. citizens who want to get out. We have deployed U.S. intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance assets to support land evacuation routes, which Americans are using. And we're moving naval assets within the region to provide support. According to a U.S. official, the Pentagon is looking at multiple options to facilitate the evacuation of people from Sudan if called upon, including the use of Port Sudan. That might mean the presence of U.S. troops. The White House says there's a willingness to get those Americans out of Sudan, but no mass evacuation is planned. There's certainly a willingness to to take steps to uh, help Americans be able to get out of the country. The president has asked for every conceivable option uh, to be able to help Americans. American teacher Trillian Clifford and her 18-month-old daughter Alma are sheltering in place in Sudan. They're now rationing food and supplies. Earlier, her family called on the United States to help get her out. I'm very frustrated because as a U.S. citizen who works abroad, she's always been told, you know, the U.S. Embassy has her back. And it's very clear that they don't. But the U.S. saying tonight they are working to help U.S. citizens who want to leave. An estimated 16,000 Americans, many with dual citizenship, remain in the country. But the State Department says only dozens have actually contacted the U.S. looking for help. And David, those U.S. diplomats were initially evacuated to that U.S. base in Djibouti. But now some of them are making their way back to the United States, landing back in Washington, D.C. tonight. And as for the thousands who are still trapped in Sudan, well, those ships uh, are heading into the Red Sea. And they have capabilities to help transport people if needed or provide medical care. So there are no plans for a mass evacuation. But the United States wants to be ready if they get the chance. This morning, after days of deadly violence... Relief and joy in the first images of U.S. Embassy staff rescued from Sudan in that daring nighttime operation. A U.S. official now telling ABC News the Pentagon is looking at multiple options to facilitate the evacuation of Americans and other foreigners from the war-torn country from Port Sudan. And that might mean the use of U.S. troops.
The Pentagon has sent two Navy ships off the coast of the country, along with American drones flying 24-7 above a United Nations convoy in which some Americans are trying to get out. We have deployed U.S. intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance assets to support land evacuation routes, which Americans are using, and we're moving naval assets within the region to provide support. American citizens have begun arriving in Port Sudan, and we are helping to facilitate their onward travel. More than 400 people have been killed and nearly 4,000 injured. As the battle rages, 16,000 Americans remain in the country with no immediate way out. Many of them are dual citizens as well as aid workers. One American trapped, a Massachusetts teacher, Trillian Clifford, and her 18-month-old daughter, Alma. The two have been forced to shelter in place in their apartment. Their family desperate to get them home. But to think that the two of them are in this much danger is horrific. She's telling us stories about airstrikes within a kilometer of her apartment. Her situation is becoming more dire every day. Now those U.S. ships join British warships as part of a growing international effort to get foreigners out of the country. That from ABC News this past week. In another separate developing story over the last several days, this from CBS News. CBS News has confirmed the death of a senior ISIS leader who the White House has described as the mastermind behind the 2021 suicide bombing at Kabul airport. That attack took place during the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. 13 U.S. service members and roughly 170 Afghans were killed. The White House is not releasing the name of the ISIS leader, but senior administration officials say the Taliban was responsible for his death. Our David Martin reports from the Pentagon. A measure of justice for the 13 American servicemen and women killed by a suicide bomber during the chaotic evacuation of Afghanistan. One of the dead was Marine Staff Sergeant Taylor Hoover. His father just got a call from the Marine Corps. Explained to us that the uh, leader of the ISIS cell that was responsible for the bombing was killed by the Taliban. Does it uh, matter to you uh, whether or not it was the Taliban that apparently killed him or the United States? I don't care who it was that that killed him. It's one less terrorist that we have to worry about. Does it feel like justice to you? To me, it won't be justice ever. The bomb carved a path of death and destruction through the crowd, wounding 45 other servicemen and women and killing at least 170 Afghan civilians. It sent more than 100 ball bearings into former Marine Tyler Vargas Andrews. I opened my eyes to Marines dead or unconscious lying around me. And David Martin joins me now for more. David, can you help us understand why the Taliban would go after an ISIS leader? Well, the Taliban and ISIS have been uh, fighting for control of Afghanistan ever since the U.S. left. And as Americans, we should uh, all be rooting for the Taliban because the Taliban, uh, as bitter an enemy as they have been for uh, all these years, does not have any real desire to attack the United States. ISIS, on the other hand, is determined to attack the U.S. CBS Pentagon correspondent David Martin. As we continue the American Veteran Show coming up, remembering Harry Belafonte, a United States Navy World War II veteran. We'll have that next. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. 
We continue this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. And as of our late record time late last week, word of helicopter crashes, again, involving the United States military. Overnight, two U.S. Apache helicopters crashing midair, killing three soldiers and injuring one near remote Healy, Alaska, more than 200 miles north of Anchorage. Officials say soldiers based at Fort Wainwright from the 11th Airborne Division were flying two AH-64 Apache helicopters back from a training mission when the crash happened. This morning, Army officials saying this is an incredible loss for these soldiers' families, their fellow soldiers, and for the division. Our hearts and prayers go out to their families, friends, and loved ones. It comes just weeks after several crashes involving U.S. Army helicopters. Last month, nine soldiers were killed in Kentucky when two Army Blackhawks crashed in a training exercise west of Fort Campbell. And back in February, a Blackhawk from the Tennessee National Guard crashed in Alabama, killing two crew members. The head of the 11th Airborne Division also said in that statement, Fort Wainwright is one of the most tight-knit communities in the military. Obviously, this would hit hard for any unit, but terrible news out of Alaska. Breaking news overnight, a deadly helicopter crash killing three U.S. soldiers and injuring a fourth. It happened in Alaska, and we are learning more about what led to the crash. Chief Global Affairs correspondent Martha Raddatz is tracking the latest. Good morning, Martha. Good morning, Michael. This morning, another tragic loss for Army aviation. These were Apache attack helicopters returning from a training mission in Alaska, flying in tandem and colliding midair, then crashing to the ground. Four crew members total, three now confirmed dead, the fourth hospitalized. This is not only a terrible loss for those families, but will raise red flags for the Army. This is the second midair collision within a month. Nine soldiers were killed during a training mission in Kentucky at the end of March when two Black Hawk helicopters collided midair and crashed. That was a night mission, and the crew was wearing night vision goggles, which adds an additional element of danger. This crash in Alaska happened in clear weather before dark. This is certainly something they will look at in terms of training, since mechanical issues are an unlikely cause. Those reports from ABC News and NBC News, respectively. This from News Nation, United States Air Force Lieutenant General Retired Richard Newton. Well, the area is uh, in between uh, Fairbanks and Anchorage, Alaska. There's uh, there's some training areas there, training ranges, if you will. Um, it's uh, the, the terrain is extraordinary. Now, Healy, where it's located, is is essentially ground level. It's at sea level or about a thousand feet elevation. But there's uh, sloping terrain. There's there's mountainous terrain in the vicinity and so forth. Um, and I don't know if that's a factor or not. We'll we'll know more after they what they've assembled now is what I would call a safety investigation board. The weather appears to be not a factor, at least in the Healy area. And so, uh, but they'll take every every uh, effort to understand uh, what the what really the core responsibility of this this crash is. But it's a it's a vital area for us in terms of training, uh, not only for the Army but for the Air Force as well. Indeed. And you say the specific helicopter is trustworthy, but but it does have some safety challenges. And of course, we know those two soldiers injured in the area in February. Can you explain what those safety challenges are? Well, well, the safety record, it's not unblemished. Um, now, the, the Apache, the AH-64 is a workhorse. It's been in uh, the United States Army inventory since 1986. It's also been sold through foreign military sales to other nations such as Japan and Greece, uh, Israel, and, and others. Uh, but it's been very effective in combat in uh, the Persian Gulf in the early 90s and also in Iraq and Afghanistan. But it has had some challenges. Uh, the aircraft has gone through some modifications and so forth. Uh, I don't know if it's related to, uh, you know, some of the material challenges that the aircraft has had. Uh, 
again, it's too early to speculate, but when you do, and I've been on safety investigation boards before, uh, again, you're looking for the root cause of, of this particular accident. And, and they'll be looking at uh, the crew members, uh, was there a pilot error or human error involved? They'll look at material uh, challenges uh, or material failures. They could look at weather, although that doesn't sound like it could be related. Birds in the area, those type of things. But it's still it's too early to tell. But this is a this is a, a very good aircraft. It's had some challenges, as you related earlier. Um, but also the the challenges are we we train the way we fight, and so how they employ this aircraft uh, in training is is very close to combat conditions and so forth. And so I'm sure the United States Army is going to be taking a look at the uh, training regiment as well. Lieutenant General Richard Newton, United States Air Force, retired on News Nation late Friday. We take a pivot here on the program, and as we had told you in our first segment, the next couple of uh, pieces of, of, of information that we discuss on the program, you know, maybe it doesn't seem completely logical, but we pay respects to the late Harry Belafonte Jr. He died this past week at 96 And he was a United States Navy World War II veteran. A giant in the world of performance and activism has died. We look at the breadth and the impact of Harry Belafonte, whom the president today called a groundbreaking American who used his talent, his fame, and his voice to help redeem the soul of our nation. Six and seven and eight and bunch. Daylight come and if you want go. It was Harry Belafonte's signature hit in a long career and life defined by much more than music. Belafonte rose to fame with the 1956 Banana Boat Song, earning him the nickname King of Calypso. Born in Harlem to Caribbean parents, he grew up in poverty during the Depression, but went on to win Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony Awards. Ever since the world began, woman was always fooling man. Singing everything from Calypso to spirituals to protest songs. His third album, Calypso, was the first officially certified album by a solo performer to sell more than a million copies. Don't be like that, baby. Belafonte broke barriers on the stage and screen as well, one of few black leading men in the 1950s and unafraid of tackling taboo themes like race. Even in a racially segregated America, the handsome, husky-voiced Belafonte became a sex symbol with fans nationwide. But he grew tired of acting, eventually turning down jobs he described as racially neutered. By the 1960s, he was publicly more politically active. In 2011, he spoke about that journey with Gwen Ifill. My activism really started the day of my birth. Born from immigrant parents in New York City, my mother was overwhelmed by by America. She came here with hopes and ambitions that were never fulfilled. Belafonte recalled the spirit of 1930s America. At that time, there was a lot of talk about uh, white supremacy and Hitler and democracy, and America was mobilizing for this great campaign, and the whole world was caught up in it. And what attracted me to the arts was the fact that I saw theater as a social force, as a political force. I kind of felt that art was a powerful tool, and that's what I should be doing with mine. Belafonte lent his voice to the black-led civil rights movement, marching alongside his friend, Martin Luther King Jr. He reflected on the first moment he met Dr. King in this 2018 interview with NewsHour's Charlene Hunter-Gault. I listened to him, and I was just absolutely struck with uh, the way in which he presented his case to the black religious community, condemning them for being uh, not more engaged in the social destiny 
of black people. As civil rights protests unfolded in 1968, Belafonte guest hosted The Tonight Show for a week. The first black man ever to host a late night show. His guests included Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy. His activism over decades knew no bounds. Of the fight for freedom. Campaigning to end apartheid in South Africa, mobilizing support to end HIV AIDS, and serving as a goodwill ambassador for UNICEF. He never stopped speaking out against racism in America. The struggle is still going on. The cruelty of the enemy is as great as ever. Belafonte's publicist said he died of congestive heart failure today at his home in New York. He was 96 years old. That from the PBS NewsHour last week. Coming up in our next segment, where stateside United States Navy World War II veteran Harry Belafonte would find himself. Do you know much about what happened in the summer of 1944 at Port Chicago in California? We'll have that next. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stefan Tubbs. We continue this week's edition of the program. Thank you so much for your time. And tell a friend, either they listen live via live stream or the radio, noon at 710KNUS or 710KNUS.com, just after noon every single Sunday. We hope you spread the word for us and our new and improved website, AmericanVeteranShow.com. In case you've missed past episodes, please visit that often, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Last segment, we told you about the connection with the late Harry Belafonte and why we would put uh, features this week on the American Veteran Show. If you are just joining us, Harry Belafonte, he passed away this past week at 96. Of course, such an incredible entertainer, both on the big screen, his Calypso-style recordings. We talked a lot about that. But we also make a mention of the late Harry Belafonte because from 1944 to 1945, he served in the United States Navy during World War II. He served stateside at a place known as Port Chicago, and it has nothing to do with the state of Illinois or the city of Chicago. Port Chicago, actually in the greater San Francisco Bay Area. And do you know about the Port Chicago 50? Do you know about the Port Chicago disaster in the summer of 1944? This from NBC Bay Area. The Port Chicago base was a Navy base. It was, in fact, the most important ammunition handling facility on the West Coast during World War II. There were about 1,400 sailors there, all African-American. The, uh, the officers were all white. The job that fell to black sailors at Port Chicago was the task of loading ammunition and bombs onto ships destined for the war. My job was uh, loading ships, torpedoes, 
and uh, depth charges and just every kind of uh, ammunition that the Navy is using was very dangerous. You know, that's, that's the thing that constantly stayed on your mind. Neither the officers nor the sailors have had any preparation or training in ammunition handling. You load in the ammo on the boat. And it was a terrible thing, I mean, to, you wondered, is this it? Is this it? Is it going to explode? They called them the loading officers, and they had to tell us what to do, but they didn't know what to do any more than what we did. Richard Soublay's father, Morris Soublay, was a chief boat's mate working on one of the munition details. I think he told me once, we know that inevitably something was going to happen. We just didn't know when, and we didn't know how. And they could handle two ships at a time on either side of the pier, and they were getting those ships out of there a few days each, turning them right around and getting them right back out. They'd bring the train up there, and they would uh, bring it up to the ship. So that's where the danger come in, at, because most of the guys were uneducated. They didn't know. They would just get the ammo off the freight and start throwing it around, and it was a hell of a feeling. July 17th, 1944, there were two ships there waiting to be loaded. The Bryan and the Quinault Victory had come in that morning. The Bryan was almost completely loaded by that point. And one of them was loaded to the hill. When in the next morning, it was leaving. It was leading out of there, loaded down. I was at my barracks. I just took a shower. It was close to 10 o'clock. And uh, the darn thing just blew up. It just exploded. And everybody started running. We were running different directions. We didn't know what the hell we were running to or what. It was more explosions after that one. After the first one, you could hear the, the whistle flying over. You could, you could hear it. I ran as far as I could, and I tumbled over in a ditch. And I, lo I laid there for so, I don't know how these people found me. After a while, they picked me up out of this ditch. My leg here was bleeding, and uh, my feet was cut by glass and stuff like that. And I, I just had my skivvies on, my underwear, you know. They were talking to me, take, take him to the hospital. They kept me for about four days. Huge blast, probably the largest blast before the atomic bomb. It went off there, completely destroyed the two ships. All of the sailors, all of the officers were killed who were there or right near the pier. Nobody knows exactly what happened. Nobody who was close enough uh, to see it survived. The blast killed 320 men, wounding nearly 400 more. It was felt as far away as San Jose and Santa Rosa. Just over a mile away, the town of Port Chicago suffered major damage. There were a couple of airplanes that were flying in the air that night, and one pilot reported that he saw a chunk of metal go by his plane, and he was up at least about a half a mile. And so to think that you would have a disaster like this taking place on American soil is just, it's unconscionable. 
The day after the explosion, Morris Souble was called on to clean up. They were called out to, to help try and figure out what, what happened and what they could do to help people who may have survivors out there. And what they, what they found was just carnage. A week after the explosion, the officers gathered surviving sailors and issued their next orders. When they were called out and uh, ordered to form formation to go to the shipyard at Mare Island, where, what would they be doing? Loading ammunition. They asked me to go back and all the, all the other guys too, going back to loading ships. And everybody was refusing. They didn't want to go. And I said, no, I don't think I want to load ammunition ship anymore. And when they were ordered to turn and go to the boat that would take them over to where the ammunition handling would be done, they stopped. They stopped basically as one man. And 50 said, no, we have to now recognize that that's dangerous and life-threatening work, and we don't know that we want to put ourselves in harm's way like that again. Fifty of the men who refused to report to the nearby Mare Island Navy base to resume loading ammunition and bombs were charged with mutiny and faced a court-martial trial. Some, like Ross and Souble, agreed to go to Mare Island and continue the dangerous task of loading ships. My dad was one of the guys that went back. He felt that he had an obligation to defend his country. I, you know, I asked him once, what did he think about that? And he said, they had to make the choice that they needed to make. I had to make the choice that I needed to make. How come you didn't get court martial? Because I told him I'd go back to work. My mother was crying, boy, 24 hours a day. They took the men over to Merrill Island. We were making ammunition. With only 50 of them were put on trial for mutiny. Uh, 50 who were sort of randomly chosen by the officers. The trial was held on Treasure Island, right out in the middle of San Francisco Bay. All 50 were found guilty of mutiny and sentenced to immediate Im imprisonment uh, to long prison terms of about 15 years. The Port Chicago 50, as they were called, were imprisoned until the end of the war and then released. But the Port Chicago incident had set in motion a profound change in the military. The black sailors had no idea that their work stoppage at Port Chicago had played a part in the desegregation of the Navy and then the other branches of the military. What they had done would be what the civil rights movement would do in civilian society. That from NBC News Bay Area. Again, rest in peace. Harry Belafonte, United States Navy World War II veteran, passed this past week. He was 96. As we wrap up, how about a job? Or if you are in the transition phase from military to civilian life, do you know about Recruit Military? Have you heard or visited RecruitMilitary.com? We'll tell you why you maybe should or tell someone you know. We'll end the program with Recruit Military. That comes up next. This is the American Veteran Show. AmericanVeteranShow.com. This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. 
We wrap up this week's edition of the American Veteran Show, highlighting a group that we've certainly highlighted in the past over the years here on the American Veteran Show, and that is the outfit Recruit Military. You can find out more, RecruitMilitary.com. Just a few days ago on our regular program, we talked about a job fair that was just this past Thursday. They do them all of the time, and I love the fact that we on this program can kind of be a facilitator to some of you veterans who may be looking for a career change or you're transitioning or maybe importantly as well, jobs for your spouse and and those in your family as well. Happy to welcome on Recruit Military's Senior Vice President, Justin Henderson, also a United States Marine Corps veteran. Semper Fi to you, Justin, and thank you so much. Hoorah, Stefan, and thank you for your time. Absolutely. Tell us, just give us an overview of what Recruit Military is and your objectives. Sure. Yes, Recruit Military is the largest job board for military veterans, military spouses, as well as the largest job fair system for those people as well. And um, we also do a lot of branding for organizations to help them attract the right military talent. And I've been here for over 17 years, like you said, Mm. uh, former Marine. And it's really nice to see the evolution. You mentioned military spouses going to events. And I tell military, you know, what's so beautiful about these job fairs is that you have the opportunity to understand where your military experience translates into corporate America, because so many of us that exited the military just had no idea what we were going to do, mm-hmm. unless it was an exact, hey, I was a military police officer, I'm going to go be a police officer in the civilian world. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it's not that easily translatable, and that's what we're here to do, is help those veterans understand their value in corporate America. Learn about this organization, friends, RecruitMilitary.com. That's RecruitMilitary.com. We've talked about it over the years. We talked about it with your colleague uh, just a few days ago on, our, again, our regular program. But what is it that maybe some veterans listening to you right now, Justin, maybe they don't realize that, wait a minute, I do have that training. I do have that skill set. I do have the ability to bring what I've learned in the military and put it into, you know, the private sector. Talk about that. Well, that that. That's a great point. You know, so many times when people close their eyes and think about a military professional, they think about physically fit, mission-focused, safe operator, servant leadership, all those key attributes on the DNA of a veteran. But when we get out into corporate America, so much is around hard skills or experience. And what we have to understand is the real value we bring to an organization is our ability to drive that culture, to operate safely. Uh, from, here's an example. I was a motor transport operator. I was a truck driver for six years. Mm-hmm. And here I am as a salesperson for the last 17 years. And what I did was I incorporated the discipline and the creative solution systems that I learned in the Marine Corps into this role that made me successful. So, so many times when you leave the military, you don't quite know where you fit. But when you go talk to these, these hiring authorities, for them, the light bulb goes off when you do the face-to-face job fair because your resume may not pass an ATS, an applicant tracking system, mm-hmm. the way a civilian will. But when you go face-to-face with somebody and they see the true value you bring to, to the table, that's when the magic happens. Yeah. Let, let's talk about, uh, Justin, you know, this potentially can be, be heard coast-to-coast and around the country. So maybe mm-hmm. folks, mm-hmm. you know, missed last week in Denver at Mile High Stadium, the, the job fair. But I imagine you go to the website and you guys, this is what you do year-round. Yeah. I mean, last year we hosted 80 job fairs across the country. We had over 5,000 hiring authorities, companies attend those, with over 37,000 veterans in attendance. Wow. So we're a very large uh, 
aggregator of military talent and opportunities for veterans. And what I recommend is, hey, yep, maybe there's not a physical job fair near, job fair near you right now, but we host virtual career fairs every month. And that's an opportunity to get in front of those companies that maybe, hey, you're stationed at Fort Bragg right now in North Carolina, but your home of record is Denver, Colorado, mm -hmm. and you can't get out there for an interview. Well, you can use one of our virtual interviews to get in front of those hiring authorities. And also, companies come to us specifically looking for military talent, and they post those jobs on our job board looking for veterans. And what we're doing behind the scenes is we're educating those hiring authorities on what's the right military experience for roles. Be it the right rank, yeah. the right MOS, whatever it might be. You can find out more at RecruitMilitary.com. Again, RecruitMilitary.com. In your 17 years, I wonder if you went back 17 years or 16 years or 15 years and then compare that with present yep. day. Are you seeing a lot more companies that say, ah, we get it. Yes, this is a good pool of potential employees. Are you seeing that? Have you seen a difference over the last 17 years for you? Oh, big time. And and it's not only it's not just the visibility of our service to our country, you know, COVID really brought that to light as well. If you follow the unemployment rate and compare that to the veteran unemployment rate, throughout COVID, we're a full point below hmm. the national average. We're still at 2.4% right now. And that just shows that the military veteran, right, foreign and domestic, we are here to help. And we have that high output level. So we see that more and more. And also we're seeing more of you know, there's only about 640,000 citizens enrolled in trade-based apprenticeships right now mm -hmm. compared to the 20-some million in university. So those veterans with a technical acumen or ones that are willing to learn that skill set are so highly desired right now. It's just, you know, we have the CHIPS Act coming into this country where semiconductor firms are going to be hiring like crazy in the next few months. We have a lot of manufacturing coming back. And they need safe operators, safe maintainers to manage that equipment and to, to work those jobs. And they're looking at military talent for that. Justin Henderson is with Recruit Military, also a Marine Corps veteran, as we wrap up with him on this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. I don't want to put words in your mouth, brother, but I, I, I hear you say 2.4% unemployment rate, which is outstanding. Uh, let's get that to 1.4% yep. maybe over the next 12 months. But it, <laughs> it, it sounds like, right, yeah. there's... Again, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like, I mean, hello, veterans. There are jobs out there. Do you concur? Yeah, there is. You know, and it, but you know, what I tell veterans is we're unique, but we're not special. We're unique because we raised our right hand to serve our country and sacrifice our lives if, if, the, if the mission, what, that was part of the mission. But when we come back, yeah, they're going to thank us for our services, but they're not going to treat you special through the process. Mm. So you have to do the work. And a lot of times what I tell transitioning militaries, look at your career transition, just like you did your promotion boards, right? When you're going up for promotion in the military, you're spending hours preparing your uniform, your ribbons, your medals, preparing for your questions, everything. You want to put that same time of focus and intensity in your transition of your career that you did in those promotion boards. You'll be highly successful if you do that. One more question before we wrap up, brother. Give me... It might be tough, but give me one tip that you want to maybe bestow upon somebody listening to you, and then maybe after that, they go to RecruitMilitary.com. Well, I'll tell you my favorite interview close that I've heard in the 17 years that I've been doing this job. And this is really good, and it's, I can't tell you how many veterans are employed because they ask this question at the end, at the end of the year. So at any interview, you can tell that that interviewer is going to say, hey, thank you for your time, Mike. I've, had, I've got all my questions answered. Any questions from me? And that's when you're going to let them know that you're genuinely interested, 
They're going to say, hey, thank you so much for your time today. I was really excited to come out here and meet the team. Now that I have, I have to tell you, I think this is the right role for me. So before I leave, I have to ask, is there anything you heard from me, anything you saw from me that would stop me from moving forward from this opportunity? Because if so, I want one more shit shot to win it. Hmm. But like I said, I think I'm the right person for this role. And what you find, one, hiring managers, people hire people they like. So by telling them that you like them, that gives you a better shot than the person who says, hey, no, thank you so much, I'm out of here. But two, when you say, is there anything you heard from me or saw from me today that would stop me from moving forward? Sometimes managers go, well, hey, this person doesn't have it, and they don't even ask the question. But if you ask that question, I go, well, you know what? I think you're great. This is a safety management role, and you just don't have safety experience. You go, oh, I didn't put it on my resume, but let me tell you about my safety hmm. mm-hmm. I think that's probably the biggest, cl- the best way to close an interview I've heard. Awesome stuff. RecruitMilitary.com and it's Senior Vice President Justin Henderson. Thank you, man, not only for your service and sacrifice, but for, you know, continuing your service to your fellow brothers and sisters in the military. And uh, best of luck as we go down another road toward the next Denver Veterans Job Fair, of course, in 2024. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you so much for your time and best of luck out there. RecruitMilitary.com is the website. That wraps up this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. For producer Michael Arpaio, I'm Stefan Tubbs. Enjoy your week ahead, and remember our troops. The American Veteran Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. And join us next week for another edition of The American Veteran Show. We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525.